0: You're going to notice this morning that the sermon is different than usual. The sermon is always different uh, because we preach from different passages every week. But by different, I mean different uh, stylistically. It's a different type of sermon, one that I've never actually preached. Uh, Not this passage or anything like that. I just mean this type of preaching is completely new for Heritage Grace Church. And so, if you're visiting with us, this isn't the normal. The normal for us is what we call expository preaching or expositional preaching. That's what we try to do every week. Whoever stands behind this pulpit, we start with the text, we start with the Bible, and we build out from there. That is our starting place. And we seek every week, whether we are successful or not, we seek for the main point of the sermon to be the main point of the text. That is expository or expositional preaching. And we think that is the best thing for us as a church. We think that should be our main food source. That should be the main diet. Like healthy whole foods should be the main food source, our main diet in our own lives. Uh, But just like in our own lives, sometimes it's good to take a supplement. We don't need to only rely on whole foods. We can supplement our diet with other things. like supplements, it wouldn't be healthy for us to live exclusively on them. But the supplement that we are going through today, this type of sermon, is called a topical sermon. So expositional or expository sermon looks to expound the text. It starts in the text. Topical sermon starts with a topic and then kind of works backwards and says, what does the Bible have to say about that topic? And so that's what we're doing this morning. And it's not wrong. It's uh, probably telling that we haven't done it in two and a half years, uh, that it's we don't think it should be the main thing we do, but it's not wrong or else we wouldn't be doing it. But like a supplement, it can be good for us. And that's my hope and my desire that it would be a healthy supplement for us today. Uh, but just like supplements, we wouldn't want to live on this type of preaching. But over these next few weeks, we're going to look at a few different topics specifically pertaining to the local church. And our hope is that these supplemental sermons would build us up as a church, that it would strengthen us. Now, we've talked a lot about the local church, even in our short life as a church, and we are going to continue talking a lot about the church because the church matters very much. If you are a member of this church, you are aware of what you've covenanted to the other members of this church. You've made big promises to those sitting next to you. And so it's important for us as we make these big promises that we want to grow in our understanding of how we live out those promises. That's what this series is meant to do. But not just because it's important to us should we do this. The church matters very much to God. He talks a lot about the church in his word. And so it would behoove us. There's my ode to Dan. We miss Dan Andra, but he would say a word like behoove. So I'm saying that to Dan. It would behoove us to care very much about the local church. And so that's the hope, that this would strengthen our church. But maybe you're here and you're not a member of this church. Maybe you're visiting, maybe you've been attending for a while, but you haven't made these commitments, these covenants to those sitting around you. Well, I hope it's an encouraging series for you too. You're not here by accident. I hope you come away encouraged. And I'll let the cat out of the bag right away. I believe... The Bible clearly and consistently teaches that Christians should not be dismembered from churches. That Christians should not even be living on the fringes of church life. But that we are meant to be together, to be one. And so that's the the purpose of this series. This morning as I talk about membership, church membership, that might already make you kind of cringe depending on uh, maybe what comes to your mind when you think about church membership Uh, maybe what church tradition you grew up in. There's a lot of baggage that comes with that word, but I'm going to use it unapologetically. We're going to talk this morning about why membership matters, but I really want you to hear me very, very clearly on this, that I am not a recruiter for Heritage Grace Church. I'm not a recruiter for this church. I am a preacher of the gospel. And so my hope and desire is that all Christians would commit themselves, join themselves to a gospel-preaching church. But it does not need to be this one. And it does not even need to be one that practices meaningful church membership the exact way we do with our processes and our titles and things like that. You don't, that's not what I'm talking about. So please hear me clearly on this. I'm not trying to recruit you to Heritage Grace Church. But I think it's good for your own soul And I think it's good for particular local churches, whatever ones you might join yourself to, and it's good for the church as a whole that we commit ourselves to Christ's church. And so there may be things that I say that jar you a little bit, things that maybe rub you a little bit the wrong way. Please come talk to me after the service. I'm not hard to find. Come find me. I would love to have those conversations with you. If you want to have those conversations. And I would encourage you too to stick it out. Because this series, you're going to see the way it works. We have a really long clunky definition of the local church. And we're going to just take it section by section each week and break it down. And so my hope and desire is that as we work through this unraveling definition of the local church. That the whole would be greater than the sum of its parts. That as we look at these topics that we're addressing each week. We're going to see a bunch of puzzle pieces. That when they're scattered apart, we might wonder how do these things fit together. But Lord willing, we'll see how they all come together and create a beautiful picture. A picture of of what God says about the local church in his word. Now this is not a holistic series that covers every facet of the local church. We wouldn't have time for that. We wouldn't have the ability to do that. And again, we have talked about the local church in a lot of different ways. The purpose of this series is to address maybe some particular areas that are gleaned more, not from a simple little proof text, but from a whole reading of scripture as well as topics that just haven't come up in our time together as we've preached through certain books. So again, if you have questions, please come talk to me after the service. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. You may feel like you're out of place. Uh, you may feel like, what well, this is completely irrelevant to me. You're talking totally about the church and I'm not part of the church. Well, I think it is relevant to you because there's a lot of things when I, just like when I say membership, that brings up thoughts in people's mind of, of what, what comes to mind. When I say church, I guarantee something comes to your mind. And so I hope this morning, and I hope you come back for the next couple of weeks, I hope you come away encouraged with a clear picture of what the Bible says, what God says about the church, not what your experiences say or uh, what the news says or uh, what, what even failures in the church say about the church. God says a lot about the church. And so my aim this morning, again, there's a lot of disclaimers here, is not to just give out back and forth arguments because we're familiar with these back and forth arguments. Maybe you haven't thought about them, but there's lots of them, right? Maybe you're thinking, uh, you know, I've looked in the concordance in the back of my Bible. I don't see church membership. I don't see the words church membership. Well, then, you know, what would the response be? I would say, well, look in the concordance for the word trinity. You won't find the word trinity. In the Bible. That doesn't make it not true. It's just revealed in a different way that the consistent pattern through the Bible is that we worship a triune God. And the claim I make is as we read through the New Testament, we see a consistent pattern of them living out what we call church membership. But maybe you say, okay, I'm with you. Yeah, I get it. That, that's a good point. Uh, but I don't think we actually need to make a formal commitment. I don't think there's a, a, a by, you know, go into a class or, you know, reading some documentation or signing on a dotted line, you know, a piece of paper doesn't make me a church member. And I agree, a piece of paper doesn't make you a church member. But you see the futility of that argument, right? Because we don't want to go down that line of thinking. That's the line of thinking that our culture says about marriage, right? Oh, I could be, I don't need a piece of paper to be married. I don't need a formal commitment, well, again, that's, that's kind of the back and forth conversation we could have. And if you want to have that conversation, again, come talk to me. Happy to have that conversation. But this morning, I want to do something, I hope, much simpler. I want to just look at what the Bible says about the church. We're going to start in big and broad strokes and kind of tighten things in. We're going to look at, first of all, the word church. What is the biblical word for church and why does that matter? Then we're going to look at biblical images of the church. How is the church described and then we're going to just hopefully kind of run that funnel down to ask the question, what does the Bible you know, say about the Christian life? We're not going to capture everything about the Christian life, but specifically the Christian life in relate, relation to the church. And so I hope that that's sort of the, the path we take and that you come away encouraged. So I have a definition, and you have it in your bulletin. And when I read it, you're going to be like, wow, that is a long, run-on, clunky sentence. But I think it's really helpful. It's a definition of the local church from an author named Jonathan Lehman from a little book called Church Membership, which is a great little book. Uh, But he defines a church like this. Okay, buckle up. I'll probably read it twice, but here we go. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Okay, This is not a new flashy definition. Uh, This is something that has been affirmed for... A long time, uh, we see this lived out in the New Testament, and that's my hope is that over these uh, next number of weeks, we're gonna just break down this definition chunk by chunk because as you hear that definition or as you read that definition, you may say, I don't, I'm not picking up what you're throwing down. I'm not getting this, but that's okay. We're gonna just work section by section. And you don't have to memorize this definition, but my hope is that at the end of these weeks together, we would be able to answer the question that when I say, what is the local church? You would have a good biblically grounded answer. And so this morning, the big idea from this topical sermon is just looking at that first section of that definition. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name. The local church is more than that, but it's not less than that. And so let's start by looking at the biblical word for church we ask the question, what does church mean? And to us, church means church, right? That's literally what the word means. It's kind of a specific word for what the church is. Well, in the Bible, the word that whenever we see the word church, uh, it's not a word that was made up for Christianity. It's not like the Christian said, we need to call ourselves or what we do something uh, or who we are something. We need to They didn't make up a word. They just took a word that already existed. And I think it matters very much what that word is. Because we don't only find it once in Scripture. We find it all through Scripture. So what does church mean when we see the word church in the Bible? Well, you may know this, but the word for church in the Bible is ecclesia or ecclesia. You can hear it different ways. I don't really care how you pronounce it. I don't even care if you remember that word. But I care more that you remember what it means. So ecclesia means an assembly. It means a gathering. All throughout the scriptures, we see this word used, and it, it means an assembly of people. There's multiple times where it's used completely not referring to Christians. It's just talking about a group of people that are getting together, and, and it's almost always used in a very organized way. It's not just like, oh, there's a crowd. That must be an ecclesia. It's, it's like a duly called meeting. It's saying that's an ecclesia. That's an assembly of people where people have assembled together. But by far and away, the most common use through the Bible is talking about the New Testament church. And in every single instance, it doesn't refer to a building or a place. It never refers to a building or a place. Even though that's the thing that maybe most commonly pops into our head. If we said, what is a church? We might think of a building or a place. It never does that in Scripture. It always refers to a people. It always refers to a people. An assembly, a gathering of people. And so already, I think if we settle there for a minute, I think that helps us grow in our understanding of the church. Now, there's different meanings of the church when we see that word, ecclesia, or assembly, or church in our Bibles. There's different meanings that we can determine based on the context. And the the two big categories that we're going to look at, and if you've spent time in the Bible before, you're going to be aware of these titles, but the kind of two buckets we'll consider is the universal church and the local church. So the universal church is all Christians everywhere across all time. That's the universal church. And then the local church is local, identifiable groups of Christians. And so the universal church, we can see in, Uh, Lots of different passages, but an example would be uh, in the well-known passage where Paul is writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.25, and he's talking about marriage, and he's comparing marriage to Christ's love for the church. And so in Ephesians 5.25, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church. Now... That usage is talking about the universal church. It's not talking about just the Christians in Ephesus or the Christians in Asia Minor or even the Christians living just in that time. He's talking about the church, the church, the universal church. Other times we see local, identifiable groups of people referred to as the church. So in, we could look lots of places in scripture, but 1 Corinthians as an example, we could see a few different uses. In 1 Corinthians, right at the beginning, when he's addressing uh, the letter to the Corinthians, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So he's not talking about all Christians everywhere across all time. He's saying, this letter is to the church of God, the assembly of God, the Christians who are assembled there in Corinth. At the very end of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 16, he he says, the churches, the ecclesias, the assemblies of Asia or in Asia, send you greetings. So the translation uh, for that would be saying, you know, that the assemblies of Christians in Asia say hi. That's what he's saying. So individual groups of churches, as well as other times where it doesn't seem like there's a location tied to it, but still it's helpful as we look at the context, it can really only mean one thing. And so when uh, we look at when Jesus is teaching on church discipline, And then he says, you know, once this person, has unrepentant sinner, has not listened to one person and one with a few witnesses, eventually it goes down the line, and then it says, tell it to the church. Now, he's not saying go and, you know, somehow tell every church uh, or every Christian across all time. Uh, That's not possible. Not even every Christian today. He's not saying go to a church building and yell at it that this person's a sinner. He's saying tell it to the church, the the assembly of Christians that uh, this person is a part of. And so I know this is a lot, thinking about this word, uh, Ecclesia, but I think a really helpful thing for the numbers people is to look at the breakdown of how the word Ecclesia is used in Scripture, the word church. It's used 109 times uh, to talk about the New Testament church, and there's a few times where it's generic, where you can't really tell, is this talking about the universal or local? Uh, But 13 times, 13 times it's used to talk about the universal church, uh, most of those are in Ephesians. But then 90 times, 9-0, it's talking about the local church. That's the breakdown of that word as we look in Scripture. Now, hear me right. That's not to say that the local church trumps the universal church. They're, they're actually inseparable uh, according to Scripture. But what I think that tells us with the essentially 9-to-1 ratio of usage is that when we say the local church doesn't matter, maybe you've heard that, maybe you've said that yourself, maybe you think that today, that the local church doesn't matter because, you know, I'm a member of the universal church. Well, maybe you are a member of the universal church, but your, your emphasis seems to be weighted different than Scripture. And as we look even deeper, as that funnel kind of tightens in, we can see that the way the church is described helps us put a little bit of meat on the bones of that kind of an understanding and so that's our biblical word for church an assembly of christians And now let's look at a few biblical images for the church biblical images for the church now there's lots and we've already heard some alluded to this morning that i'm not even going to touch on that the bride of christ i mean we see that in ephesians a little bit and then alex prayed that in his prayer of confession uh, but There's lots, but I'm just going to touch on a few, and then you can. I would encourage you to go deeper in your study on these images of the church. The first one is that the church is a family. The church is a family. This is both explicit and implicit throughout the New Testament. But this identity as a family is really the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the good news of Christianity. That even though we, because of our sin, deserve to be spiritual orphans, and we are, apart from Christ, through what Christ has done, we are actually welcomed in as adopted children. That doesn't make us little gods. That doesn't, you don't overthink it. But this is the beautiful thing that happens as we consider this kind of a truth, that we are adopted into God's family. And we can see this lots of different places, but I love Ephesians chapter 1. Again, a lot of theology packed in here, but look for this adoption and children language in uh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 8. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. I'll stop there. But it's, it's that's one giant sentence. But it, it's, it's a great, rich section of scripture uh, that packs in so much glorious good news about what it means that we become a family. And we know this through, as we look through the New Testament and we see the good news of Jesus Christ. That even though we were dead in our sins, God made a way for us to be made right with him. We couldn't attain salvation because of our sin. Yet he sent his own son into the world to live a sinless life. A life that we could never live. Yet die the death that we deserve to, to substitute for us that he would take our place. And that is the only means by which we can be brought into God's family. If we turn from our sin and trust in Christ, we are welcomed in with open arms as children, beloved children. And in Christ's death and then subsequent resurrection, it demonstrated that God's just wrath against sin has been satisfied. The slate is wiped clean. And we can have utter hope through what Christ has done. And again, as I said in our call to worship, the gospel is not just you know, making us pardoned sinners, as if that wasn't enough good news. It welcomes us into the family. And we see this not only through the gospel in that sense. We see it all throughout Scripture in different ways. God is referred to as Father 250 times in the New Testament. That's a profound thought. Maybe even when Jesus is teaching uh, his followers to pray, you could imagine him saying, here's how you should pray, uh, and then he models it for himself. My father, because he is God's son. But that's not what he says. He says, our father. He invites us to go to God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, as our father. And this doctrine of adoption, this, this understanding of what it means to be part of the family of God unravels throughout scripture. And this is counter to our instincts, right? We love individualism. We are selfish at heart. And I'm not just slinging mud. I know myself. That is true of me. We love our individual identities more than we love our corporate and familial identity. But it's really interesting, especially as we look at the New Testament use of this family language, that we are actually, those who are in Christ, are told that they are brothers and sisters that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's entirely appropriate, and I would encourage you to use that language, to say brother, sister. Because in the New Testament times, the closest family relationship was not marriage, maybe what we would think, it was actually sibling relationships. And so I think it's pretty profound when we look at the way Christians are uh, described together as brothers and sisters, that the biblical authors would use the most significant and profound relationship to describe how we relate to one another. And this connects with the whole story. It's not just the New Testament, the whole story of Scripture. Throughout all of Scripture, the story of redemption is the story of God bringing a people together, creating a people for his own possession. And so as we think about that first image of the church, a family, it connects so closely to the very true reality that we are the people of God, our second image, the people of God. We can look lots of different places through scripture to see this, but you could look at uh, in First Peter 2, 9, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you who may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the revelation. This is the actual uh, fulfillment of what was promised. If We heard in our scriptural assur- assurance of forgiveness from Ezekiel 37. That, that we will be God's people and he will be our God. The people of God. Not a collection of isolated individuals, but the people of God. Not an institution made by man, but God's doing. And this fellowship, this union of being a family, being a people of God is so close that I love this next one. The Bible describes us as a body. And not just any body, but the body of Christ. It doesn't get much closer than being members of the same body. Look at your hand. Physically look at your hand right now. Okay? It's amazing. You have fingers. Those are individual members. You have a hand. You have arms. Those are not separate things that just learn to live in cooperation. They are members of the same body. It's crazy. I, I don't know. I, 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 It's an interesting, fascinating thought that that's the word they thought to use, that we are a body. That's how united we are. And this happens spiritually through The Holy Spirit, as we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, when we are converted and we receive the Holy Spirit, we are united as one spiritual body. But that body is then realized as we live together with one another. That this body refers to more than just a spiritual reality, it refers to a physical experiential reality as we live and love together in a local church. The body is a vital connection. One author says this. He uses strong words to talk about this reality of church membership and this body imagery. Church mem- he writes this. Church members are those vitally connected to the other members of the body, as the physical members of the body are vitally connected to that physical body. And so call- any so-called church members who can leave their churches without feeling the pain of being severed were never really members in the biblical sense at all. Biblical church membership is a serious commitment. It's a vital connection. And one of the most precious truths about this connectedness, about this body imagery, is not just the connectedness. It's the unity in diversity. The unity in diversity. Now, that sounds like a fun little phrase to say, but stay with me. What if a body, boys and girls, picture this. What if a body were made up of all noses? That'd be pretty freaky looking, right? Or all ears, or all hands. The body is designed to work in such a way that it has unique, diverse members. And that's the way that the Bible talks about the beautiful unity in diversity that we have in the church. And so if you are not a member of a church, or you are you know, a member in name only, The body is weaker for it. It misses having you. And you miss having the rest of the body around you. Because God didn't just design the church to survive because of our differences, that somehow we have this unifying thing that we can just get over it. He actually designed the church to thrive because of our differences. And then the final image, just very briefly this morning, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, Christians are described as living stones built together into the household of God, into the temple of the Holy Spirit into god 's dwelling place. This is true individually, but it is true corporately as we look at passages like ephesians three ten where god 's talking or paul 's writing to the Ephesians, and God speaks through his word saying that Uh, It's this mystery of the gospel, the, the coming together of impossible human relationships across racial, geographical divides. The mystery of the gospel, of Christians really living together, assemblies of Christians, says that so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be on display. God's wisdom is displayed as these living stones get pieced together into the household of God, as we saw a chapter earlier in Ephesians 2. And these images communicate a lot. And so I would encourage you, this is not a, a deep study into each of those images, but I would encourage you to, to consider those images and consider the meaning that's tied with them. What is a, a finger, a, a member of the body, if it's not attached to the body? Well, it's not, it's not a body. What is a, an, in, an individual is not a family. A brick is not a house. These images convey a lot. And even more than the specific imagery of those items, The the images are significant. God could have described church like dirt. You know, maybe they would have been a little bit nicer and said soil. But he could have described dirt. And that would make sense. We could say the church is dirt, and it's meant for Christians to grow out of. That would be an appropriate image. right? But that's not the word or the words, the images that are used in Scripture. They're the most beautiful and profound images that they could think of. Family people of god's own possession a body not only a body the body of christ and a temple of the holy spirit god's dwelling place again there's so much imagery wrapped up in those maybe today over lunch talk with the person that you're with and uh, just wrestle with that those images and think how how is that actually realized how is that actually lived out in scripture how is that actually lived out in my own life and i'm confident that as you do you'll see that these spiritual realities don't serve their full function as they stay kind of in the ether and and as some nebulous thing. They actually become very concrete when we think about living together in local churches. That's how we actually love God's good gift to us. And that brings us to our final section, very briefly, but a biblical understanding of of the Christian life. Again, lots can be said on this topic, but a biblical understanding of the Christian life, specifically how we think about the local church. And I want to look again, it's going to be a fast journey through, but at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. You can turn there if you have your Bibles with you. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. This is a familiar passage. It's actually a passage that Josiah has preached on here before, but I think it really well illustrates, as does so many other passages, the glorious good news of the gospel woven straight into the nitty gritty of church life together, that they're not separate thoughts. It's one in the same. So I'm going to read uh, from verses 19 to 25, and I want you to see the shift as I read. That there's a few verses, three of them, that are kind of you'll see the word "since," so it's sort of the the background, the, the what supporting text for the application that comes in the final four verses. You're going to see verses that say since, and then you're going to see verses that say let us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and here's what we are to do because of these spiritual realities, as you see the day drawing near. Okay, I'm just going to give the disclaimer that there is so much packed into these verses that I'm not going to touch on. But again, study it this week. Uh, I would encourage you to do so. But what we see is this grounding in the gospel, the good news that it's through Christ we have access like, you know, those who went before throughout the Old Testament, God's people couldn't have even fathomed the Access in the beauty, the living way that has been opened for us through Christ. And then immediately in the same paragraph just rolls right into what we are to do. And it starts kind of up here. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, these things. And then it gets into all of a sudden this kind of out of nowhere seeming statement. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the consistent assumption that we see throughout Scripture. And here it's a command that Christians are to gather regularly, not as individual consumers, but with the express purpose of stirring one another up. It's a very active word, stirring one another up to love and good works. And how we can't, we simply can't do this if we don't gather together. We can't look at this passage and say, Yep, yeah, I'm in line with that if we're not regularly assembling with Christians. And even if we physically gather, even if you are a member of the church, you may live in such a way that it's not actually real commitment. It's not this kind of stirring one another up to love and good works. And so as we think about this topic of physically gathering, such an integral part of the Christian life in the local church, we acknowledge the fact that gathering is costly. Gathering is costly. I'm glad, as so I look out and see your faces, I'm glad that you counted the cost to be here today. You could have done a lot of things, but you didn't. You're here. And so you counted the cost. You wrangled your kids together. Maybe you set your alarm a little earlier. You got here. You counted the cost. Right? Other people counted the cost to be here. Right? Dozens of hours go into every one of our Sundays. We financially counted the cost. We rent this building, other churches' own buildings. There's financial costs. There's, there's very real costs and it's easy with our hearts to neglect the gathering because it costs too much for us. And that's what the author to Hebrews is writing to these Christians. He's saying, don't neglect the gathering. Some have done that. That's the habit of some. But don't do it. And, and you know, maybe these Christians in the first century were feeling the pull to return to Judaism and return to their old life. It was much easier then. Maybe that's why he's saying, uh, don't, like, neglect gathering you need to be together Uh, or very likely they were facing serious persecution and that was their reason for not gathering which is probably a lot of us would say that's a good reason to not gather but he's saying don't don't neglect the gathering as is the habit of some but gather to encourage it's good for you and it's good for those that you're encouraging and stirring up but we need to acknowledge the fact too that when we look at this verse And when we read this, when we say these things, it's not simply just showing up. It's not simply just, you know, being in a chair. The consistent pattern we see throughout Scripture is conversion, baptism, being added to the church, and then living it out with one another. Being the church, being a family, being a contributing member of the body. That's the pattern that we see, and that's what we see here, that that the, the gathering isn't just gathering for the sake of gathering. It's gathering to stir one another up, to encourage one another. And that's where we can get the idea of membership wrong. I have a Costco membership, and when I go to Costco, I see my fellow Costco members. Maybe some of you are Costco members here. But when you look at those people, sure, you're, I guess, affiliated in some sense. You both have that little, maybe you're even platinum members at the Costco you have that card, but you have no real deep connection with those people, right? You are members of the same group, but there's no deep connection apart from loving to buy 200 of something for slightly less money, right? That's the Costco affiliation. That's not the way the Bible talks about church membership. The Bible talks about church membership as linking arms with your brothers and sisters, as something far more beautiful and far more profound. And that's why the word membership can have baggage. And, and I wish there was maybe a better word. I don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't even have to talk about it because it's just so assumed. It can't imagine a, a life dismembered from local church fellowship. And it costs them something significant. And so hear me right. As we think about local church membership, whether in name or in function, we're not talking about salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But I want to give this illustration, and maybe it'll help you kind of catch the way I think about it. Imagine you met somebody, and as you were getting to know them, you found you were saying, Tell me, what, what's your deal? What, what are you about? What do you love doing? And they say, I'm a baseball player. Cool, I'm not an expert on baseball, but I know enough about baseball to know what you mean. You're a baseball player, cool. But then you find out later that they don't actually play baseball with anybody. They're a baseball player, they say, and they very well may be, but they don't actually play baseball with anyone. As you ask them, they love baseball. And they play baseball by themselves. They lay on their back with gravity. They throw the ball up and play catch with themselves. They even, they're even they committed. They go out to the baseball diamond. They do some monkey hitting. Or they set up a ball on a tee. And they play baseball by themselves. They, and now that you think of it, you've walked your dog a few times. And you've seen them at the school throwing a ball against a brick wall. So that they can practice fielding grounders. So they're seriously committed, it seems. But they never actually play baseball with anybody. They may be a baseball player. But I think we can agree they're not playing baseball the way that the founders of baseball imagined it. This week, I looked at the official rules of baseball. It's 180 pages long. And I was buckling down like, okay, we got to find out. Let's learn something about baseball. I didn't have to read more than the first sentence to find out two facts about baseball. It's assumed in the first sentence of the foreword that baseball is played on teams and those teams play in leagues. It's just assumed. As I read the New Testament, and don't just take my word for it, read the New Testament yourself, and look and see what the assumption is for the Christian life. Is the Christian life doing it on your own? Or is it a team sport? I think you'll find that Christianity is not an individual sport. The Bible knows nothing of a solitary religion, A come and consume Christianity, a belong before you believe type Christianity. We see throughout Scripture that redemption creates a people. Redemption creates a people. And as we look at all sorts of different topics, we look at things like baptism, we look at the Lord's Supper, we look at your faith in general. We can agree, yes, those things are personal. But according to Scripture, they're never private. They're personal, but they're never private. And so my aim is not to proof text you to death on this, but I would encourage you to look at commands for you, the Christian, if you are a Christian. And I'm not just talking to people who aren't members of this church. This isn't a passive-aggressive move or anything. This is a reality we all need to wrestle with. Look at these scriptural commands. Look at when it says love one another and ask yourself the question, how can I do that? Who is my one another? Is it all Christians everywhere? In a sense, yes. We are to love one another, all Christians everywhere. But how am I actually living that out? What about if you take it one step further and you look at a command that says, bear one another's burdens. How can you bear one another's burdens when you don't know who those one another's are? You look at passages even a few verses, uh, chapters later in Hebrews that says that Christians are called to submit to and obey their leaders in the church. Well, what does that mean for you? Is that all pastors everywhere? Certainly not. That same verse talks about those pastors, those shepherds, keeping a watch over the souls of those entrusted to them, as, as those who they will give an account for, who will stand before the Lord and give an account for those that they've kept watch over. And so a question for you to ask is, who's keeping watch over my soul? And then a really important follow-up question is to ask, does he know that he's keeping watch over my soul? Maybe you look at passages like church discipline, and you say, oh, that sounds painful, but I I don't really know in the situation I have myself in that I have people that are watching my back in case I start to sin. Or maybe you look at those passages to lovingly practice church discipline, and you're saying, I don't really know who I'm supposed to do that for. I say this in the most uh, loving way possible, and I think it's good news for us. We are as a church herd animals i think you know what i mean by herd animals we live in a herd and that's the safest best place for us to live and grow and we don't do well to wander away from the herd or the flock or the school or whatever you want whatever animal imagery you want to do we are wonderfully herd animals because you look at you know who is Uh, The lion going to attack, Well, the one who wanders away. And the Bible describes Satan like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so we are stronger together. When you are weak, you need a brother or sister to hold you up. When you are vulnerable, you need a brother or sister to protect you. When you are a danger to yourself because of your own sin, you need brothers and sisters to intervene. It is good for you to be part of the herd. And it's good for the herd for you to be a part of it. You may say, oh, you know what, I'm doing the Christian life well on my own. If I joined the church, they would just slow me down. Well, maybe you need to be a part of that church so that you can speed them up. To stir one another to love and good works. Because Christian, you have a job description. And we're going to look at this more in depth next week. Very specific job description for every Christian. But don't miss the beauty and the privilege of loving God's good gift, of what it means to be a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name. That's what we see in Hebrews 10. The reality of what was accomplished through Christ allows us to be a people because of Christ, to be Christ's people. It's not a social club. It's not a Costco membership. It doesn't have to be done exactly the same way in all the same places, but it's a costly beautiful commitment to love God's good gift, something that God designed for our good and for his glory. The church is clearly and consistently described as an assembly, literally by definition. The church is an assembly, as an assembly is described as, in beautiful, profound language, a family, a body, a people of God's own possession, a temple of the Holy Spirit. When Paul describes the preciousness of the church in Acts 20, he describes it as something purchased by Christ's own blood. The Bible clearly and consistently shows us that the church, a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name, matters very much to God. And so the question I have for you today is, does it matter to you? There are lots of ways to answer that question and lots of ways to apply that truth, but I leave it with you to follow through. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. The fact that it's through your word that we gain understanding of how to live in a way that is for our good and for your glory. Lord, I pray that each and every Christian here would be a meaningful member of a church that proclaims the gospel. And Lord, that we wouldn't get bogged down in definitions or practices or procedures, but that we would look to your word and find out how to be obedient to it. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, who doesn't know this hope, Lord, I pray that you would stir in their hearts powerfully today. But Lord, more than anything, we ground our feet on the firm foundation that is Christ. Christ who makes us a family. Who has made it possible for us to be a people for your own possession. Who gave up his own body so that we could be brought in to be the body of Christ. And that we could, in an amazing sense, be the dwelling place for your spirit. God, we thank you for all that's accomplished On the cross. And I pray that as we share in the Lord's Supper, we would consider these profound and glorious truths. In Jesus' name, amen.